0: when film criticism is as provocative as ever. Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit because every movie
1: makes us feel something. Movies. Movies are what bring us together today. And one film, a true classic, is what we will be discussing. Our love, true love, will probably come out in every quote, topic, and feeling we talk about. We bring you the princess bride.
0: <laughs> I would give you a standing ovation right now if I could, because that was amazing. Okay.
1: <laughs> I've been I've been practicing all night it's just, to make sure I don't I don't mess up. But now that you've probably thoroughly shaking your head and given the obligatory eye roll and smile, welcome to episode eighty here at Feelin Film. I'm Patrick, the man behind the voice, and with me as always is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hey, buddy. Hello. This episode promises to be, at the very least, a gushing of love towards a movie that both of us have more than an affection for. I'm excited to talk about it as I know Aaron is, but before we get into that, let's go ahead and talk about our weeks. Aaron, what has been going on with you?
0: Well, I want to set some expectations and I got to ask you, is this going to be a kissy podcast?
1: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> this this we'll have to we'll have to stop and 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 just kind of glean over <laughs> those portions if it is. That would be kind of embarrassing. <laughs>
0: Oh man. Well, Patrick, this has been a busy week for me. I have had a lot of movies that I've been watching. Um, trying to, trying to, as much as I can still go through my 31 days of war. I have missed a day or two now. And frankly, I don't, I, goodness gracious. It, when I, when I thought that that was going to be hard, that was an understatement. Like it is really, really difficult to watch. One movie every single day of a certain type, like on top of my normal, you know, screenings and movies for podcasts and all that stuff. Uh, and so I'm probably not going to hit 31, but that's fine. I'm still going to watch some some new stuff that I've never discovered before. And it's it's going to be a cool theme for me all the way through October. Uh, but one thing that has happened this past week that I really do want to talk about is triggered by the release of a movie trailer and that movie trailer was the trailer for Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Now, this is all the rage, and part of me is a little sad because it felt like when this trailer released on Monday during Monday Night Football, it kind of overtook all the conversation about Blade Runner. So Blade Runner 2049 comes out on a Thursday night, and by Monday, it's out of everybody's mind because people are talking about the new Star Wars trailer. And that makes me very sad. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049 and it's still in the theaters, please, if you have any interest at all in cerebral sci-fi, if you can handle a slower, longer movie and it makes you think, but it makes you feel, go check it out. Spend your money on it because it's not making enough money and we want more of these kind of films. And if you, if you want, if you want more like that, then you've got to speak with your wallet or Hollywood's just going to avoid them. It's just a matter of fact. So uh, hopefully we can continue the conversation about Blade Runner in our Facebook group and other places online and offline because I'm not done talking about it yet. Uh, But that being said, moving from more traditional science fiction to science fantasy in star Wars, Watching that trailer, Patrick, got me, well, I should back up. Before the trailer released, I was having some conversations about whether or not I should watch it at all, and I'm kind of known in our our group, our our, among our listeners a little bit as a Star Wars, I don't know if people think I'm a hater, but I didn't like Rogue One. I thought it was average or okay, and although I give Force Awakens four stars, (laughs) I enjoy the heck out of it. I was very vocal about the fact that I felt like it was just a rehash of a new hope. And I was one of those people. So I had that reputation. Well, it's been several years since I've seen force awakens. And I decided before I watched this last Jedi trailer, because I wanted to watch it and know what was going on. I was going to rewatch the force awakens. So I did Monday night before the trailer, I watched the force awakens again. And man, Patrick, it was the best viewing of that movie that I've ever had. It tops the first viewing, to be honest, kind of like what happened to me with Blade Runner 2049 during my second viewing. I think a lack of expectations and some distance between the last time I saw it and just, just being in a different headspace allowed me to really enjoy it for what it was. And Even some of the things that had annoyed me in the past, I I just saw them in a completely different light. And this speaks to conversations you and I have had many times about how watching a movie when you're 20 can be different than when you're 25 and you have a kid and a wife, right? Like your life circumstances inform your viewing. One thing stuck out. There's a, there's a line uh, where Han says something to uh, Finn. He says, does it have a trash compactor? Uh, because they're looking for somewhere to escape. And the first time I saw this movie, I remember just rolling my eyes like, oh, come on, I'm like, come on, guys. Can you be mm-hmm. any more repetitive? But this time, I actually really enjoyed it. And I thought to myself, wow, like, that's what Han would say. Han went through this before. So if in real life, if this was happening, of course Han's going to reference that because that's how he got out of a last situation. So why wouldn't I expect that to be coming out of his mouth? And so... I was able to really enjoy it. Um, it it was better for me. I loved it. So then I watched the last Jedi trailer and I'm super hyped. (laughs) I, I, uh, what, what I, my goal was in all this was to kind of try and rekindle my love for star Wars. Um, going back, I was a big star Wars fan, just like everybody else in the nineties and the two thousands. Um, I went to every single prequel at midnight. I dressed up for at least one of them that I know for sure. I can't remember if I did for two or not, um, I was dressed up for those, those initials viewings. I used to have every Star Wars Lego set. I mean, I, I was as big a fan as anybody for many, many years. And I, I would love to recapture that magic and then try to start passing that on to my own children. But I knew that it was, it was going to take some effort and it was going to take some, some, you know, forced attempts. And so yeah, it was just, it feels really good to have loved The Force Awakens and to be excited and hyped for The Last Jedi. And I'm going to take it a step further. I, I decided I would rewatch Rogue One, give that one another shot. Unfortunately, that one still lands for me just about the same place it did the first time. I won't rehash that here, but it didn't, it, it doesn't, it's not my favorite Star Wars movie. You know, it's got some good stuff in it, but it's not my favorite. And I'm trying to branch out now. So I've started uh, Star Wars Rebels, which is the newest TV show. It's a cartoon. I think it's in its fourth and final season right now just starting and it's I believe it's goes between episodes three and four of the movies I'm not 100% sure on that but it kind of is like a follow-up to the Clone Wars uh series which I watched all of and absolutely loved and I've watched two or three episodes of Rebels and it's really good so far I, I like animation is incredible uh if you, for somebody who really likes like animation in cartoons this is top-notch so I'm enjoying that. I'm going to plan on trying to slowly work my way through it. Luckily, their seasons are only like 15 episodes long each. So it's not a huge investment, 22 minute long episodes. And then I also grabbed a comic book. So I was listening to our friends, Blaine and Josh, who have a show called Home One Radio. Uh, Home One Radio is a Star Wars podcast. Every week they bring you Star Wars news interviews. Um, just I mean, it's it's incredible. If you're a Star Wars fan, check out Home One Radio. They're amazing. But they had this episode on how do you get started in Star Wars? So I listened to that and in it, Blaine mentioned this comic book, uh, about a character called Dr. Afra, who I'd never heard of. Well, Dr. Afra is basically a, an Indiana Jones slash Nathan Drake treasure hunter in the Star Wars universe. So it totally piqued my interest. I was like, what? That sounds amazing. Uh, because I love that kind of story—adventure and treasure hunting, and you know, looking for artifacts and stuff. So I grabbed the the first volume of that comic book series, and I've I've read through a couple of those, and I'm really enjoying that. And yeah, I'm just just gonna see where it takes me, and if I can rekindle the love, that'll be awesome. If I can't, I can't. But so far this week, it's been a lot of fun for me.
1: Well, good. I'm glad you had a uh, a great experience the last time you watched this last viewing of The Force Awakens and i think the star wars universe has this unique advantage over other established universes um harry potter or you know other whatever's in that there have been so many writers that have contributed to various stories anthology books things like that and that i think the hope for things like rogue one the upcoming han solo upcoming boba fett anthology movies are that we can have that security blanket of we love star Wars and be able to tell refreshed stories or original stories that I think what you're getting from the comic book and even from the cartoon in a way that allows us to feel like we're both still a part of the star Wars universe, but we're getting something new because I think that's kind of where some people fall in, in terms of the different kind of camps where you have, Hey, I love my original three um, I don't like the, 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 you know, episodes one through three. I'm glad that seven, eight and nine are going back to my original three. Um, I know that we've had a lot of chatter on social media about that very thing, how episode seven feels like a rehash of episode four. And, and there's, there's agreement and disagreement all over there, which is totally legitimate. And you can, I love the arguments made for and against that. But what it tells me is that in general, whether you agree with, those particular things are not, there's a genuine love and value for this universe. And I personally haven't gotten into any of the anthology stuff. I just don't have time to read all that or even get into the, the cartoons and things like that. But I can completely respect a universe that has that much density in terms of its uh, content, in terms of its stories, because I hope that those, some of those things become more TV shows and more movies because you, you know, it's, it's probably one of the most well-respected universes out there in terms of cinematic universes. And so I'm glad you're getting a chance to be a part of it. I, I saw the the last Jedi trailer. I actually watched that, uh, back to back with the new justice league trailer. I was really impressed with both. I was yeah, excited. Me too. I, I'm excited about both. I'm not like, you know, gonna, you know, run into a, a corner and be like, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, and I'm certainly not going to buy the $33 tickets that are available for Thursday night. I'm willing to wait a couple of days and have a regular price matinee. So it's not something that I'm just itching to watch, but it's definitely something that I'm excited to see and talk about with you when the uh, the time rolls around in mid-December. Me too, man. Well, what about you? What have you been up to this past week? Well, this week I got a chance I said, got a chance. I had the opportunity to take my son to the doctor, which is something that my wife normally does, but she's recently gotten a new job. So her flexibility is not as wide as mine. And he had to get booster shots for his first year of pre-K. Um, and so leading up to that, he, he's such a smart kid. He would ask me, Danny, are we going to the doctor to get a shot? And I said, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what the doctor says. I mean, knowing full well that you're going to get a shot. Little did I know that he was actually going to get five shots. Oh my gosh. Uh, so I was glad I didn't tell him that he was just going to get one shot because that would have made me a liar. At least I was just ambiguous to start out with. But as he was kind of continuing to kind of build up his big boy stamina and getting ready to see the doctor, he, I let him borrow my tablet and he knows where the games are on it. And so he pulls up this game that, I'd gotten from one of the humble indie bundles uh, a while back and had had played it maybe a couple of times, but it didn't really pique my interest. The art was really cool, but he started playing it. And this four and a half year old is like figuring out this puzzle game that Hmm. is not even remotely his age appropriateness. It's a a game that came out in 2014 called Monument Valley. It was. for iOS? Are you
0: serious? I know. It just, I mean, again,
1: <laughs> I'm always late to the party.
0: No, so, I'm not laughing about the, the time. I mean, I, I'm saying it's complex puzzling. Like, it's it is com- you yeah. have to rotate things in 3D and see them.
1: Yeah. And so, as he was discovering things, things that I didn't actually know about, I was like, oh, that's how you do that. So, we both kind of found ourselves, because, you know, when you go to a doctor, you, you have a, that one o'clock appointment, but you know you're never going to see the doctor until like at least 145 or two. So you just kind of prepare for those things. And so we're, we're playing this game and he's intrigued by it. He sits in my lap and he's like, can you teach me how to do this? And I'm like, I'm learning just like you are, buddy. And so two things came from this. One, the, the game is very fascinating. It It's a 3D puzzle game and it forces you to turn shapes. It kind of takes inspiration from MC Escher and, and, and similar art forms like that, but it's very minimalist. It's by a... Um, uh, a, a company called us two games. I believe a sequel was released for iOS earlier this year. That's correct. And so, because I don't have a, an Apple device, I don't actually have access to that. So hopefully they'll port it over to, to Android at some point and I'll get a chance to, uh, to play that. But it's fascinating to me. I, I love puzzle games like that, that really kind of leave you with self-discovery I don't remember getting instructions to say, okay, you need to turn this. It just sort of gives you hints at like, oh, okay, that thing lights up. What does that do? And then you push your, you know, you you make a hand gesture and something happens. The other thing that came about was just getting to spend time with my son. This is one of the first times outside of the Wii that he and I got a chance to just spend time playing a game together. And these are things that I, I cherish. I cherish moments like that when we're sharing something like that. Going to see the Lego Batman movie earlier this summer was, was fantastic. Um, I love the fact that we have those things to share. And of course you have two kids. So you, you've kind of experienced this, you know, for several years before I have, but I love doing that. And I'm really excited about getting a chance to just like you with star Wars and, and your son getting a chance to kind of expose him to the things that, that I'm enjoying right now, like Rocky. Um, like Rocky, Rocky will be <laughs> one of those things and that actually leads by, to my by 5-year-old,
0: 5-years-old yeah. Carson's going to be like hitting the punching bag.
1: It's going to be like hitting some people. Like that's not appropriate except when you're fighting Apollo Creed. But um, you know, I have a a ton of comics sitting in my closet here that I'm excited about sharing with him once he gets old enough to to understand those and they become he becomes more age appropriate for those. But it was just really a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed uh, spending time with him and playing that game with him. We're going to continue to do that hopefully at, at some point in the future. But you mentioned Rocky and that kind of leads me into the second thing. So you were, I think when we were, you were talking about the princess bride and you said that we I think you mentioned on social media that we both, or th- this movie, I think finished out your top 10 of movies of all time. Is that almost? Well,
0: uh, no, yeah, this is, uh, we have now covered in some form or fashion nine out of my top 10 movies
1: that's right because i know you're number one and that's gonna that's gonna take a while yeah (laughs) so so j uh so so jacob neff mentioned hey well what about patch's top 10 and you kind of wrote back and said well he's got to actually write a top 10 i egged it on yes (laughs) and so and, and and it intrigued me i read that that comment and i was like man what are my top 10 movies and so I've really been thinking about it over the last couple of days. I haven't officially wrote them all down. I know I have at least five, but I haven't ranked them. So I have to fill out the other five and then find a way to figure out, okay, what's going to take the prestigious top spot. And uh, so hopefully over the weekend, well, this will drop on a Monday. So hopefully this past weekend, I will have come up with a uh, with a top 10 movies of all time. And I'm, I'm kind of curious for myself what's going to make the cut because there's a lot that I really enjoy and they may not all be considered quote five star movies. You know, there may be some of my top 10 that aren't, I don't consider five star, but that I personally just really enjoy. So this will be a fun little exercise and um, it's an exercise in subjectivity. So no haters out there, please.
0: (laughs) I'm excited to see it. I, I have no idea. I mean, I know I could probably guess a handful of them.
1: Yeah. I'm you can sure. guess at least two. I know um, I've already
0: gotten two, right. But I, I yeah. know I can probably get half of them. If I think about it, once you're done with it, you know, once you have 10, I bet I could pick your, pick them out, but yeah, I, I don't know what they'll all be. And I'm, I'm super excited to see what that list is going to be. And, um, hopefully you'll, you'll post it in our Facebook group so that the rest of the listeners can see it as well. Cause I'm sure that like Jacob and the others will be excited to see what it is too.
1: I will do that. I will do that. I will make sure that, um, I will try to give myself a deadline of the weekend and then have it up there, maybe Sunday Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. It's so, awesome. So yeah, and with that being said, why don't we go ahead and get into our main review of the Princess Bride? As always, we are going to spoil this movie. And so, come if
0: you on, ha- do we have to? Do we even need to say that for the Princess Bride?
1: You know what? There's going to be one guy out there, one person out there, is going to be like, I can't believe you didn't tell me you were going to spoil this. And- Whatever. <laughs> So, for the sake of disclaimers and legality, just know that we're going to talk a lot about the Princess Bride. And so, if you haven't seen it, please turn this off. Go see it. Come back and enjoy the discussion with us. 30th right. anniversary, Patrick. 30th I know. I cannot believe it. Is it? And that's for the movie, not for the book. That's right. The book come out came out in the 70s. Right. Because I think I had like the 20th anniversary when I read it at the time. And I think yeah, it was about 10 years behind the the movie. There's so much history. Around this movie, I was flipping through the IMDb trivia page and there's there's just so much that you glean from from that page of just the behind the scenes stuff, the different uh, appreciation that some of these actors have for their their characters and whatnot. But I wanted to begin the discussion by asking you personally, because you mentioned this is number three or number four all time for you. It's
0: number three. Okay. It used to be number two until La La Land bumped it. Okay. They are right there. Like it's, okay. it's two or three. Okay. So it was me. number one before Lord of the Rings existed. I'm sorry.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's high esteem right there. So it's only getting demoted because of things that are just, pretty incredible to begin with. It's not like it's getting bumped because it's gotten worse over time. Oh gosh, no. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking you personally, what is it about this movie that gives it that top five ranking for you?
0: Well, number one, enjoyment factor um, is is a huge part of that. Uh, there, There are movies that we can watch and we like parts of, we like most of. There are very, very few films that truly capture your attention for every single second and word of dialogue. And for me, The Princess Bride is one of those few films. It is endlessly rewatchable. Uh, It absolutely never, ever gets old for me. I can pop it in. It's one of the few movies that I would be just as happy to watch back to back to back. I can watch it through. And then hit, re- hit replay. And I, and I used to do that all the time. Back in the days when we would wear out our VHS tapes. Uh, for this movie. You just play it. Hit rewind and go right back in and do it again. Obviously it's quotable. Uh, if not the most quotable movie of all time. It's in the top five. And that's a lot of fun. Because when you. You begin to interact with a film. It takes it to a new level as well. You're no longer just a viewer. But you are. You are part of it. You're, you're not just, you're not just watching it. You're having that ex- full on experience. You're engaged. It is peppered with incredible themes and character traits uh, in all of its characters. I mean, this movie covers everything. Honor, loyalty, friendship, fairness, kindness, faithfulness, manners, <laughs> um, courage, true love. Like everything is here. And it's done so in such an incredibly wholesome family way. I mean, this movie's PG. There's nothing in here that I wouldn't let my eight year old, you know, see. So you, you can introduce kids to this at such a young age. It's, it's got multiple heroes. So it's not just it, like, unlike most fairy tales, most fairy tales will have a hero that rescues somewhat, you know, whether it's a damsel in distress or whatever the, excuse me, whatever the case may be, this one has multiple heroes, um, and of all different types, sizes, um, social status, (laughs) race in a lot of ways. Uh, if you want to consider giants as a fantasy race, you know, um, all of that, I, I think I love everything about this movie, or I don't think I do love everything about this movie. There's just nothing that I can find that I don't enjoy. I've tried to nitpick it. I've tried to look through it and say, Oh, you know, is there a performance that I don't care for? Is there one scene that I just, you know, not quite up to par with the rest? There's nothing, Patrick. There's literally nothing. I mean, it, it it could be a number. It's a number one worthy type film for me. And I, I think that there's a good reason why most people you talk to will respond incredibly lovingly when you bring up the princess bride and most people have it ranked very highly in their all-time favorite list. I don't think I'm alone. And uh yeah, man, I getting to I'm just glad we did this episode because I got to rewatch it and I haven't watched it in a long time. So, uh, it's already been a win for me.
1: Well, that's good because I don't think we have anything else to say. You've pretty much summed up everything great about it. So, thank you guys for listening and we no. I I I I, I really can't add much more to that because I would agree with pretty much everything you said watching it for the podcast. I think we've mentioned this in the past, that when we watch something for the show, we're specifically looking for things and trying to create discussion. And there are times when there are movies that we don't love, we like a lot, that we maybe have trouble finding discussion topics. And the thing is that we we talked offline about movies that are just absolutely wins for us. We We can run the risk of just sort of glossing over the why's and just say, well, it's just so much fun. It's great. And that's a true statement. But what I loved about doing this is the fact that I had to kind of force myself to ask that question. Why do I enjoy it? Why do I enjoy it? And it's all of those things. It's timeless. It's, it's approachable. It's accessible, I guess is the word that I would think of it. There are things about it that feel dated. There's some set pieces that I think look like they're from a high school play, but those don't detract me from the overall story art, because the moment that I notice that something else happens that just completely reminds me of why I love it. The thing that I pulled away from this is that it's, how do I describe this? It could have easily been a story that makes fun of fairy tales because there's a lot about it that's not traditional, which makes it really, really great. And so the writers, um, you know, William Goldman, who wrote the original book, he could have injected a sense of let's just poke fun at all the cliches of fairy tales. But instead I felt like it seemed to celebrate them and inject this new modern kind of not theme, but modern tone to it. You know, when we have things like Vicini talking about the plan that he has and he says, basically it's good business, you know, like he's just sort of being matter of fact with the way he's talking about this job of capturing the princess and killing her. And when we see that, or when we hear that, it reminds me that we're telling a fairy tale to a modern audience. We're not trying to tell a fairy tale as if it's traditional. And this whole balance, that kind of balanced tone reminded me a lot of a Knight's Tale. The first time I watched that and you get to that opening scene and I'm going, what? Okay. We've got Queen playing in the background. And, whoa, whoa, whoa. These guys are actually like stomping to Queen. Are they actually hearing the song in medieval times? That doesn't make sense to me. But as I began to watch it more, I began to see kind of this, this, these similarities between these two movies in that it's, it's a creative team that's trying to bring something f- that we're familiar with from the past into the present and make it refreshed. And I think the princess bride does that in an incredibly funny, incredibly heartwarming, incredibly adventurous way. I love that it's not conventional, but I love that it has those conventional pieces that we're familiar with enough to kind of keep us comfortable, but then we'll kind of deviate here and there. I mean, I love uh, when Grandpa says it's got fencing, it's got fighting, chases, escapes, giants, true love. Yes, it has all of this. And I was excited about it.
0: It's in order, by the way. If you if you listen to that part that monologue part where he's re- listing things off it kind of goes in order of the story which I think is awesome by the way I just think that's cool this this, very this, cool. this this movie has such a pre, it's like pre-meta it's it's actually called it's called a nested narrative is what it is um the fact that so it's like it's a movie based on a book based on a book uh, <laughs> you know because the the book in question is S Morganstern's The Princess Bride and then William Goldman is writing about, as a narrating, you know, S. Morgan Stern's book. And of course the movie, um, does this as well. And it's, it's a, it's a term that nested narrative. It's kind of like storyception in a way, you know, story within a story. And the, uh, you know, the only one I can't think of a lot of examples of this, the notebook, maybe would be one that Mm -hmm. does something similar to this, where you have somebody uh, who interjects themselves into the story as you're going. Right. So grandpa will enter and, and grandson will both interrupt. So I, I love that about it. Um,
1: and it's just, uh, it's so cool. Like it's so unique. That's for sure. And I look at a story like this and on the surface, it feels very much like you're, Typical fairy tale, but there's a lot about it that as you watch it more, you realize, Oh, here's what we'll do. We'll take this element of a fairy tale and we'll put it here in the story. So for instance, they start kind of what would be the end, which is a princess getting engaged to be married. And that's usually the climax of a, of a, of a fairy tale is princess finds quote, true love with the prince and they get married and live happily ever after. Well, this story, they use that moment to create the real adventure because she's marrying Humperdinck and she doesn't love him. And so they use that familiarity, familiarity, there we go, if I can say it right, the, to, to really kind of set the, uh, set the energy of the, of the rest of the movie. And I love that Like in the first seven minutes, we, really get, we just get introduced to everybody all the main characters are introduced within seven minutes of the movie. So it doesn't even try to linger on any one person. You mentioned earlier that it doesn't just have one hero. This is a story about multiple heroes, multiple people, multiple relationships and how they all fit together. And that's something else that I pulled out of this was that this is a movie about love, true love. And while Wesley and Buttercup are the centerpiece of that, there are other relationships that, fulfill that kind of not, you know, romantic relationship, but still the, the deep friendships, the deep companionship that Wesleyan Buttercup experience on, on different levels. I didn't make that connection until watching this viewing. And I thought that was pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of those things when you get older, when you are a different place in your life, you start seeing things differently and, and you're picking up on that. Um, and you know, multiple viewings can help with that too. But in this case, I really do think it's more a matter of probably maturity and age. Yeah. You know, you, your, your mind goes to, it's a fairy tale. There's a princess and a swashbuckling pirate who's the hero. So Mm -hmm. that's what it's about. But then you start picking up all the nuance and the layers and those different relationships. And that's what makes this a phenomenal film, Mm -hmm. right? There's plenty of movies about a princess and somebody who saves her. Um, and what's, what's also unique about this one is it starts the opposite direction of a normal fairy tale. So most fairy tales end with the princess becoming engaged to the king or the prince, right? Like that's how they end the prince. She's now she's married to the prince and she's becoming the princess and the queen. Mm -hmm. And those, that's how they, they, they wrap up. And in this one, that's how it starts. And it's a bad thing. (laughs) And so then it works its way in reverse, to get her out of that situation. I think that that's a pretty brilliant reversal uh, as well. And I love that it carries on that oral tradition of storytelling in a way, you know, stories developed over time from cavemen on being passed down by being retold at campfires and, and then and such until eventually they started getting written down. And what we have is basically that's what grandpa is doing. Yes. He's reading the book, but he's, audibly telling the story to his grandson. Mm -hmm. And, um, I actually did this for the, I don't do this enough. My kids are older now. I did when they were really young. I used to read to them all the time, but when they got older and they started reading on their own, I kind of stopped doing that last year. We made it a point to read through a monster calls together. And I read it to them and I had to do all the voices and, you know, they loved my tree monster and, and such. And, um, I think it's a lost a lost thing. I don't, I think more parents need to make that a part of their weekly routine somehow, you know, make it a point to read to your kids because it's an amazing bonding relationship. Uh, and it would, and it's just like, just like you see here, right? It, it, that's what happens. So there's, there's so much greatness in this movie.
1: There is. And I want to, I want to talk about the story for a little bit because we've, we've mentioned how the The movie as as a whole uses elements of fairy tales to to bring about its own unique approach to to uh to what story it's telling but there are these really interesting subplots well not really subplots I would call them maybe just kind of parallel or um, i don't know what the word would be, but there are all these plots where every it's not just about Wesley and Buttercup. I mean, that's kind of what drives most of the movie is Wesley's rescuing of Buttercup from the, from the evil prince. But there from the beginning, there's the plan to start. Um, the, uh, the war between Florin and Gilder. We find out later that that's what Humperdinck wants. He hired him. We have uh, Inigo's quest for revenge. Um, I kind of wish we would have gotten maybe a little bit more backstory on Fezzik because he is, one of my favorite actors and people in Andre the Giant, and uh, you know it would have been great to see his you know where he came from. I mean, obviously, we get hints of that from his beratement by uh, by Vicini, but we have those two. We have those. We have those kind of plot lines. Mostly Indigo. So he's he's the other big one, but we also have smaller plot lines like the uh, Humperdincks desire to, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's swamped. He's got his 500th uh, anniversary of, of Gilda to plan. He's got his uh, wedding to plan um, his wife to murder and, 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 and the other country to blame for it. You know, he's swamped, right? So he's got this whole thing going on and we, we get all this stuff that could feel very, it could make this movie feel very bloated. But I think in a lot of ways, those separate stories, and how they intertwine with one another, how they connect with each other makes not only the story more interesting, but it makes the characters more interesting because I look at the princess bride. And if you, if you tell me what a character is, like if you tell me who Wesley plays, he plays a pirate and Fezzik and uh, Vassini and Inigo are what bandits, I guess you would call them bandits. And Humperdinck is a prince. If I told you that, having never seen The Princess Bride, who would you tell me would be the good guys? Well, it would probably be Humperdinck, because princes are always good. And the bad guys would be the pirate and the bandits. Well, The Princess Bride basically reverses that. It says, here are guys that we would assume are good, and they're not really, because we find out over the course of the film that they have you know ulterior motives. And the same with these, these bandits and with Wesley, who we find out, obviously, is the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, because who would want to surrender to the Dread Pirate Wesley? Nobody would. And I think it's very creative to be able to do that because it makes the story and the characters more interesting. It keeps me more interested in the overall story, but it makes me feel like these characters aren't flat. And as a result, they become more rounded out as the movie goes on. So I really enjoyed that part of the storytelling.
0: Yeah. The different different subplots are something that give this a lot of, a lot of extra heart because then you have character arcs that are going on that are not just Wesley and Buttercup. They're not just passing characters or side characters that come in, serve a purpose and then disappear. They come in, like you said, very early and they stay for the entire runtime of the film. Um, the, the, the political intrigue of this really does fascinate me because you have Vizzini who he, he's, He's clearly, like, this is not the only time he's doing this, right? Because he says he, he comes from a family and a, it's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. So for him, it's more than just a job. I think. I, I don't think that this is just a one off job. It's a, you know, it's a matter of status. He takes, he's, he's a very prideful man. <laughs> Uh, and he takes great pride in what he is accomplishing this staging of the war. And it, it seems to motivate him. Like he, he has a higher purpose and then I mean, it's not a good one, but it, it's his higher purpose, which is to be known as this great strategist, uh, who is, who is sought out across the land. And then when it comes to a unique Indigo's Quest, and I don't know why I keep pronouncing his name wrong, when it comes to Indigo's Quest, um, this idea of revenge is peppered throughout the film. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because one thing that stood out to me during this most recent viewing was that Indigo is not the only one seeking revenge in this movie. There are quite a few other characters seeking revenge. We have... Miracle Max who wants revenge on Humperdinck, right? Um, we have Wesley who clearly wants revenge on uh on uh Humperdinck for taking his bride. Um, we have Buttercup who wants revenge. Um, it's there are more than one character that that exemplify this and what's interesting to me is that all of the characters wanting revenge are good and they all somewhat get their way. And so I wanted to ask you how you felt about that because revenge is not something that we usually celebrate. It's something that we think of as a a tragedy. You know, when you, when you go into, when you go for revenge, it's an empty, empty result. Um, so I wondered what you thought about that in this one, because that's not,
1: how it 's portrayed, no, but it's framed as justice to me if i 'm going to look at all of those things I, I think that it's more of justice because what we see over the course of the film is that Humperdinck's the evil guy, you know he's the one that he cares nothing about Buttercup, he lies to her, he cares nothing about anything but himself and about what his legacy is going to be as as king I mean the fact that even though this didn't actually happen in the movie or during the story, because the grandson was like, whoa, 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 this didn't happen. The the narrative says the king died that very night. And before dawn, (laughs) the prince and princess were married. If that had actually happened, I would have believed it. Because to me, Humperdinck is a character who is hilariously hateful. And hilariously, he's that, he's that guy that I want to get his comeuppance. And so I think everything that happens to him, everyone that has this, this need for revenge against him is really more justice than anything else. And the movie doesn't, it has moments of real drama. I think we can safely say that when, uh, when, when Inigo says, I want my father back, you SOB. That's a dramatic moment. We don't laugh at that moment. But I think there's enough levity in here that it keeps that overall tone of revenge on a lighter scale that it's not laughed at, but it's not necessarily thought about in a provocative way where we're like, hmm, should that have been the real motive? I think it's this really weird balance of being able to say, I'm celebrating what you did, even though people died." Okay. I'm celebrating the fact that you got what you felt like you deserved, even though it probably didn't change who you were. I don't think, I don't know that Inigo was necessarily in particular, a changed man. We don't know. And uh, so, yeah, I think more of a a justice when I think of the, from the tone of the film, I I look more of a, a, as justice rather than revenge.
0: I love that you mentioned that. And I think that that, Is a very good word to frame this around because it it is, in essence, a a sort of healthy revenge, which is is not always the case, right? Um, We usually look at characters who are spending their entire life obsessed with one thing, like getting revenge for his father, in this case, um, as not living his life, right? He's missing out on things. But I, I think when you frame it as justice, it really helps make that better. And then of course it gets, you know, justice is what seems to be enacted later on because Wesley has every opportunity to kill Humperdinck. He he can absolutely kill him. He is at his mercy. Uh, and he chooses not to, right? He chooses mercy and and that's to me more justice like in this situation um than it is in Indigo's because in Indigo's situation, you know, Count Rugen is not a passive scaredy cat like Humpertink. He's going to try and kill you. So you, you have to fight him with actual action, right? You have to take, take effort to go out. You can't just, you know, you can't just sit there and not put your sword up or he's going to kill you. Uh, you have to defend yourself. I wanted to mention, I don't know if you know this story, but this is a, a story that from, Mandy Patinkin, who was the actor who portrayed Inigo. And he's told this story about how he had lost his father to cancer a few years before getting this role. And so that experience really informed him during his, his, uh, portrayal. And he drew from that when he was doing his acting. And so he kind of viewed this role as a sort of therapy for himself. And he's quoted as saying this for a moment when I killed the six fingered man, it was like I killed the cancer that killed my father for a moment. He was alive and my fairy tale had become true. Now, <laughs> if that doesn't put in a ghost story in a much different light, I don't know what will, but when I learned that true life story behind this, it. Just elevates it even further for me. Um I al- already absolutely adore his performance in this movie. I think his passion and his determination, um, his emotion, come through so strong. And now it's like, okay, I get it. I get why. Um, and so when you think about it like that, it definitely fits more in the realm of of justice than revenge.
1: Yeah the the fight sequence with him and Rügen feels. Different in emotion than the fight between him and, and Wesley. And for, for obvious reasons, obviously you have this just funny dialogue going on between Wesley and Indigo. They're not trying to best each other. They're really just, it's almost like they're just complimenting each other. You are wonderful. And they're throwing out. I actually watched this movie with subtitles on because I wanted to catch every line and hear, cause there were certain lines that I kind of interpreted in my head, you know, like, you do with songs like rock the cat box, that kind of thing. And I wanted to make sure that I caught every line that I could. And they were throwing out different kinds of fencing techniques, like actual fencing techniques. Like you were using this defense against me. Oh, I had to go ahead and use this to, to counter you. And so the overall tone of that fight sequence, which is phenomenal, by the way, I love the choreography. And I read that the choreographer for that did the, did the choreography for star Wars. So if that the original, not the, not the, the episodes one through three, but you contrast that with the fight between him and root and Rugen and it is brutal. I mean, it is, there's no finesse. It's all anger. Like, especially I, I was watching it and I saw, you know, when Rugen he's trying to, you know, he stabbed him, he sticks him twice in the, in the arms. And then he, he tries to slice at him and you just see Indigo's face get just get madder and madder. And he's almost like he's, he's hammering down with the sword. It's just really, the, the tone is just completely different. So by the time it gets to that one moment where he stabs him and says, I want my father back. You are in that moment and saying, this is real folks. I mean, this is, this is the real deal. And so when you, when you hear that interview, and you see that, you know, you, that's in the back of your mind. You're like, yep, that totally makes sense because that's completely different than other, other choreography that we've seen.
0: Absolutely. And Christopher guest is actually quoted as telling the story of how he, prior to the final cut of that, that sequence, he actually got stabbed in the thigh by Mandy during that fencing scene. And he told the fencing coordinator, or choreographer, he was like, he's going to kill me. Like he's, he's literally going to, he thought he was, he was genuinely in fear because Mandy had gone to such a place of like absolute, like, you know, um, molding himself into this character that that Christopher Guest thought he was going to accidentally stab him too many times and hurt him. Um, so like, I guess that's taken uh you know, a real strong effort into your craft, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is wonderful. And Rob, Rob Reiner is the director, correct? Is
1: mm-hmm. that?
0: Okay. Yeah. He, he actually has said that he, he believes the fencing in this stands up to any movie that was made uh, prior to it. And I, I have to agree. I think the fencing is amazing. Uh, who was it? Carrie Ells is was talking about um, how much, how much work they put in that they just spent so much time trying to get this perfect Um, because it, it meant a lot to them. And that's, that's something that I've, I've, in doing research about this movie over the course of, you know, two or three decades now, various times I've learned is this cast, everybody that is involved with this project was 100% in, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings. When you hear that cast talk about it, there's not, there aren't people that are just kind of like, eh, yeah, you know, it was a job. Everybody bought, bought in a whole to this project. And they, they were all there and they gave of themselves into it. And it, and it's clear, right. It's clear in the product that we got.
1: Yeah. That's something that's really interesting about movie magic is when you get a cast that owns their roles and owns the overall story. Obviously you have guys like Jared Leto, who I think are committed to their roles uh, in things like, um, you know, Blade Runner 2049 as Wallace, or, or other movies. And, and we have method actors like that. But there's something very, very cool when you have an entire cast of people who look at the story and say, this is worth giving our best. We're not just earning a paycheck. This isn't just a movie that has some cheap laughs that we're going to be able to bring to an audience. I want to believe that each of these cast members were like, I love my character. I wanted to see my character do all that they were supposed to do and be as convincing as they needed to be to elevate the rest of the cast and i think that's what this these characters were to each other i mean they became a family over the course of the movie and that's what i think is really one of the things that's really cool is the definition of of true love you know that that phrase true love true love is is spoken quite a bit and on your initial viewings or even subsequent view- viewings, you really kind of equate it to two people, Wesley and Buttercup. I and mean, you think true love, Wesley and Buttercup. But there were a lot of – there were other relationships, other pairings that I think equated that. Uh, one of my favorites was Fezzik and Inigo. Oh, of course. There's a, there's a moment when, when Vecini <laughs> – and again, the levity in this, the balance of being able to create humor with all this stuff is – is phenomenal. It's the scene where, where Fezzik or, or vicini is getting mad. And he said, do you want me to leave? You know, do you want me to take you back to where you were unemployed in Greenland? And he's just, and you see Fezzik is just, I mean, it's a great line, but after that, you, you see, um, you see Indigo come over here and he starts doing that whole rhyming thing with him. Yeah. He goes, he goes, uh, you know, He can be, uh, you know, I can't remember the lines exactly. I wish I could, but over the course of those three or four rhyming sequences, it's almost as if you see Inigo validating Fezzik. He says, look, it's okay, man. I'm still with you. You're, you're okay. Don't listen to what he has to say. Um, you're much better than what he calls out in you. And over the course of the movie, we see their relationship, um, not blossom necessarily, but maybe just get more of a spotlight because of their friendship with each other. Uh, the way that, the way that Physic takes care of Inigo, you know, nursing him back to health, telling him about what's happened. And, um, it, it reminded me a lot of the, of the relationship with the two brothers in, um, of mice and men, not, not parallel, but you had, um, just that same kind of taking care of of one another, older brother taking care of the younger one, but having that kind of that innocent relationship with each other. So I thought that was a fantastic relationship.
0: Well, that's my favorite pairing in the movie. I, their relationship is amazing, and I could watch more of it and, and not get tired of it at all. I love the little subtleties in their relationship when, you know, Inigo is about to take on the man in black, and, and Fezzik says, be careful, you know, and they're they're just – there's these little moments always uh, of those two looking out for each other. And it's it, it truly is more of a relationship for me at this point in my life than the true love between Buttercup and Wesley, you know, and not to knock. The Wesley and Buttercup romance, it's, it's sweet, but it's almost played more for laughs, and the Inigo Fezic relationship is played for serious. Because when you really think about the Buttercup and Wesley relationship, I mean, he's an indentured servant to her, who does her chores. The Honest Trailer makes a good joke about this, (laughs) actually. That's, that's how they meet, right? That's, he's her servant. Like, and they are supposedly in love. Like, we don't get to see anything that would equate to why he would be in love with her other than she's beautiful and she tells him to do stuff like, right. w- <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when you really dig into it, you're like, ah, why, why am I, why do I have such high regard for this relationship? But Fezzik and Indigo, you see it, you see it in action. Right. And I wanted to mention another thing, uh, a little behind the scenes note that, that just makes me, uh, it hurt tugs on my heartstrings, but a couple of things about Andre, the giant, He was the only person they knew that could do this role. Like they needed a giant and someone that was, was big enough to do this. And so when they brought him on, um, they, they wanted him exclusively and he, he agreed. One thing is that he was so, because of his size and his weight people and, and his wrestling past, his back was, is like, had no strength at all. Robin Wright actually says that even though she weighed literally a hundred pounds, she was 19 at the time of this filming, by the way, (laughs) we just saw her in uh Blade Runner 2049 and wow, like it's crazy, like seeing her 30 years back, but she said that she couldn't even, he couldn't hold her at a hundred pounds. He could not hold her in his arms. So when she jumps in his arms at the end, she's in a harness. That's how bad his back was. But of course our perception and stereotyping in our heads, we see a giant and we think, Oh, he's of course, right. He could, he could like pump up 15 Robin rice, but that's not the case. And then there's a little bit more and, and he's, he's passed away now and everybody spoke so fondly of him. Um, they were talking about the fact that he had a farm in North Carolina and he was telling them that he loved to walk with the animals because the animals never looked at him twice. And I, that was just. Crushing to me, right? Um, but what he said himself, Andre, also is that he got that same experience on the set of the Princess Bride. He said that, I don't know why I'm choking up. Um, (laughs) he said that, um, they treated him just like one of the guys. Like no one ever saw him any differently. And it wasn't even just him. There were actually, um, smaller people playing the roles of the ROUSs. Those are not CGI. Those are human beings that are playing the rats. And they had two different, two different people and one of them was really, really good at scampering and the other one was really good at like the, the slow saunter attack. And so they were two different so when you see those scenes, just know that there are two actual people in those rats. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know what else to say, man. Like that's awesome. Right. They, you know, in this day and age where we're all about inclusivity, they were doing it right back in the early eighties on this set at least.
1: So I wanted to go ahead and just do a quick plug for a book that I own and it's called Andre, the giant life and legend. It's a comic book but it's done by box Brown and I'm going to show it to our listeners that are in the, uh, in the chat room. So if you can see it, if I can see it. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's a biography of Andre the giant's life done in, in comic form. And it's fascinating because there's a whole chapter, there's a whole section that talks about those very things from the princess bride about how his, his back, he had just had surgery and how he had to, um, had to adjust and how they had to make adjustments for him. But the, the, what you've just said about how the cast felt about him is essentially lived out through this comic or this story. So I'd highly recommend it. If you want to get kind of a, a an easily digestible biography of his life, you don't want to take a ton of time. This kind of hits the high points very well. So yeah, Andre the giant life and legend. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about the grandfather and grandson, because I think that thing is kind of, they kind of hinge through it, but just, I, I thought that, that their chemistry was really, really good. I love how they progressed throughout the, throughout the film in terms of kind of keeping the story going. Um, and it just really echoed more of more of those, those good relationships and, and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to, uh, before we move on, I wanted to talk about one more thing regarding the story is, is the world building. So with, with, particularly with Fezzik and Indigo, I asked a question this week in our, our Facebook group about movies, standalone movies that kind of leave you thinking about, Hey, what would have happened with these guys? Or um, what if we would have explored this? Not necessarily asking for sequels, but just kind of pondering the afterlife of characters and stories that, we were introduced to in, in the standalone movies, a and Indigo, it'd be kind of, I would love to see kind of life after this with them. Like it'd be kind of neat to, to picture what as a pair, I'm, I'm pretty sure Indigo would take over as the dread pirate Roberts. And maybe Fezzik would be his first mate. And he would be kind of the, 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 the I am the brute squad. You know, he'd be the brute squad of the thing. So I'd love to see that. But there were so many things about the princess bride from a world building standpoint that I think, they could have made separate films just around these things like the, the, the animosity between Gilder and Florin, the thieves forest, the pit of despair, the fire swamp. I mean, these are cool things, man. These are, and they're all lumped into this hour and a half long movie. And I'm like, man, I wish you guys would have spent more time in the fire swamp or I wish I could have known more about the pit of despair or the thieves forest because these were cool places And they helped give me a big picture of where we were in this fictitious land with these two uh, rival countries of Gilder and Florin. I don't want more sequels. I don't want The Princess Bride 2 or um, The Days of Gilder and Florin, a Humperdinck story. I don't want those things to be played out. But those are things that inspire me to think, wow, these things have potential to inspire other stories. A lot like what the Star Wars movies did with books that came after them. And I think that's really powerful storytelling when you can have that much intrigue within your narrative to have offshoots in other forms.
0: Yeah, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And I would say to anyone who has not read the book first, go read the book. The book is really, really good. And it's, it's crazy. Like it is one of the most interesting reads you'll ever have because of all of the weird notes and such that you get because it's written by s morgan Stern, but written by william goldman <laughs> like it is it's wacky um but it's got some more stuff in there like you actually know that buttercup has parents so in the movie it's kind of weird it's like hey there's this random farm girl living by herself giving a you know Uh, 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 helper chores where are her parents and they don't exist but in the book they are there things like that um but yeah man like a comic book series you know or something like that would be awesome for this just little little short one-shot stories i don't know i don't even know that i would want a ton i don't know that i would want full feature links on any one of these topics um although the dread Pirate, maybe on the dread pirate roberts i I would kind of like to see I, i would like to see a Dread Pirate Roberts story, uh, that shows, you know, what, what does Gilder look like? What does the country of Gilder look like? Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's going on over there? That could be intriguing, but at the same time I applaud the restraint not to feel that they had to do that because this is a movie that stands alone. And in today's day and age, if this movie came out and was a big hit, there is no doubt that there would be 14 different spinoffs right now, all with The Rock in them, uh, playing Andre Giant, uh, <laughs> Andre the Giant's role. Uh, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like it, it would be, I think that it would be more about, Hey, can we get the spinoff or the, the sequel out? than it would be about, can we, do we need, do, does the story drive us to make a sequel? Does, Do you see what I'm saying? Like there's a difference. There's a difference in making a sequel because you want to find a way to make a sequel. And then there's a story that just naturally evolves and says, man, there could be some cool stuff to explore here. And that's what you're getting at. And that is how the Princess Bride is. So it's, yeah, it's a catch 22 for me. Like it's fun to think about, but at the same time, I I don't think I ever want to see it now.
1: Oh yeah. No, I, not I don't. in
0: film, not in film. I would, I, like I said, I would take some comic books though.
1: Well, and I, I think there's an argument, there's, there's an argument to be made to say, is it, is it more appropriate in a certain medium as opposed to another? Because we, I remember when, when Smallville left after 10 seasons and as a fan of it, I can, I can wholeheartedly say it was too long at 10 seasons the The creator of the show, the head writer, went on to, for the next two years, create an offshoot comic book that was basically season 11 and 12. And it was fairly successful. I didn't read it because you know that story was done to me. But I can appreciate that, and I think a lot of people that enjoyed the comic um, would say the same thing. but the the story of the Princess Bride invites intrigue into those other things. But I would be afraid that it would spoil the experience of The Princess Bride, because then we'd have kind of more history of Gilder and Florin, and maybe those would be in the back of our heads, maybe being distracting. On the other end of that, they could be enhancements, and they could make the story even more enjoyable and more in-depth. So I don't know. I think I think you're absolutely right that depending on the type of medium, and I don't think sequels would be the, be the avenue to go with this, maybe a television show or a comic book or maybe some, a series of short stories of an anthology, you know, stories of Gilder and Florin, that kind of thing. Right.
0: Exactly. Completely, completely untied, right. Set in the same world, but not tied to the same characters. And the cool thing is the Red Triad Roberts is such a great, uh, crossover character for that because it can be anybody. It doesn't have to be Wesley or Inigo, but you could have stories set around a Dread Pirate Roberts and you would immediately understand what that entails and what that means. And then you could have these stories in this new ex you know, land to explore and such for so, sure. You know, Who knows? Maybe somebody will listen to this podcast and, and on Amazon or Netflix in the next couple of years, we'll see the princess bride serial or something.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. And I also wouldn't be opposed to something like that hey um, can I,
0: I I wanted to mention the score because the score I've heard people who joke about it um I did not know who wrote I like it. it stood out to me this time. I think it's perfect. I think that it has fantasy you know little fantasy music when it when it needs to, and it doesn't go overboard with it. It's nothing you know it's nothing spectacular, but what I didn't know about it until I looked it up is that. It's actually written by Mark Knopfler, who is the lead guitarist and singer and co-founder of Dire Straits, the band. Did you know that? I did not know that. Okay, good. I'm glad that I'm not the only one because I know who Dire Straits is, but I had no idea that that guy wrote the Princess Bride music and then actually the, the song as well, um, Storybook Love. Storybook Love was nominated for an Oscar, Patrick. The, the main theme song, Whoa!
1: it lost dindu, yeah. De- to, de- 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 yeah. De- okay.
0: You know what it lost to? No. Had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing. So I can't be <sighs> mad. I can't be mad because I get it. What so, baffles okay. me, mm. what, what also baffles me when it comes to thinking about Oscars and awards is that the film didn't get any other nominations. How this did not get a nomination for best adapted screenplay. Like if this had happened today, I'd be in an uproar. I would be tweeting up a storm right now over the fact that this did not get a nomination for best adapt. Come on, like, and when you go look at the nominees that year, I they missed the boat on *Princess Bride*. And I and I bet you, I bet you that if they were to have a redo. Uh, voters would see this film in an entirely different light, but yeah, actually, Paul Powers, our friend from Retro Rewind podcast, Retro Princess Bride, I, they have not done this movie yet, and that is because Paul is scared. So everybody, go to Retro Rewind podcast, <laughs> tell Paul no, how no, no, much no. you here, want look. them to cover the Princess Bride. It's, he's look, scared because he loves it so much. That's yeah, that's exactly, and he doesn't right. want. And, and Paul, we are living proof right here. Patrick and I love it too. We're, we're we're trying man but uh no paul loves the music he said he thinks the soundtrack is great as well and i'm glad because yeah i i really enjoy it
1: yeah i th- i thought it was perfect for the movie the way in which um just it was used i thought it was very fitting for the uh for the film as a whole so so kudos to to mark knopfler for for his his role in that and um it's a it's a memorable tune that's for sure um, it's not one that necessarily comes to mind like every day, but when I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the Princess Bride theme. So very, very cool. One thing I wanted to bring up, or at least one person I wanted to bring up before we kind of move into our connecting point here in a few minutes, is the performance specifically of Billy Crystal. I'm a huge, huge, huge Billy Crystal fan. I love his comedy. I love pretty much all of his movies. Um I love the fact that he loves baseball. It's so great. Uh, he directed the movie 61. that was an HBO show and hearing him gush over the whole experience of that. He seems like a very personable guy, like somebody I could hang out with, have lunch with, and just pick his brain about comedy. But his, his performance as, as Max, the miracle worker, I think is, it's just phenomenal. So good. And I remember reading in the trivia about how, I think it was, I don't know if it was Christopher Guest or somebody, maybe it was, maybe it was Mandy Patinkin had to, no, no, it was Rob Reiner. He had to leave the set whenever uh, Billy Crystal was on, on, in the scene or when he was doing his lines because he would get so tickled. That it would, he would have to. He would almost hurt him. I think Mandy Patinkin said he had one injury, and it was a bruised rib. He did because of laughing so hard. I mean, you. I guess you could say you can make this stuff up, but I really don't believe they made this stuff up. Billy Crystal is just that funny. And when I saw this for the first time as a kid, I didn't appreciate how funny he was until seeing some of his later stuff. And just, gosh, how genuine he is. He's one of those comedians that I think can can call different pieces of life out and, and just make them and just draw you into that that funniness of, of life. Um, I think it's just because I, I adore him as an actor and as a comedian that the role he plays here is it doesn't necessarily outshine others, but I think it's the one that is my favorite personally.
0: Yeah. It, it's not my favorite, I don't think, but I, both he and his wife are just, oh, they're just wonderful mm-hmm. in this. And I actually, Billy Crystal got to, um, pick the design for his character as oh, well. Really? So, so he said, what was it? Oh, I was just watching this today. He said it was a cross between an old hag or, or something and his grandma. Uh, is what he ended up going with, but he, he specifically line, he outlines what he was going for. Um, and so they were, they were trying to figure out, you know, like what he was going to look like and he got to be a a big part of that process. And so there was a lot of respect for Billy Crystal on that set. And, and it just, you know, further, further goes to show everybody in this movie, like we talked about earlier, there is, there is a bond and a love between them. Uh, that, that they had on this film as an experience that they got to take away from them, take away with them. That was unique and special. It wasn't just another job like some movies would be. Uh, and, and I think it shows across the board in all their performances.
1: I absolutely agree with that. Well, let's move into our connecting points. The, uh, the thing that, that really resonated with us the most from this movie, there's a lot that we've talked about. And in a movie that has a great balance of action, adventure, drama, and, and humor, I was curious as to what either one of our connecting points would be, so do you want to go first or do you want me to?
0: I'll go for it man um Come i there's a lot first of all um as you mentioned, there's a ton of different options there's a lot of stuff around Wesley and Buttercup that affects me- on a personal level and an emotional level that can quickly put me in tears <laughs> and uh and so that's that's a definition of a connecting point. But what stood out to me the most this time around is actually a, a couple of scenes or, or a piece of the movie, more than just one specific scene. And it's the opening scene in the bookend of the movie. And they feature, this is the featuring of the grandfather and the grandson. So Peter Falk and Fred Savage. And you mentioned this earlier about their relationship and how it was one of the the examples of true love that stuck out to you this time around. Well, I got to agree because what is really neat about this. Um, and I, you know, I probably should include the scenes between the two where they both interrupt the book even because they do so in their own unique ways, but it's, it starts off with a young boy playing video games and he doesn't want to be interrupted by his grandfather. Fred Savage even talks about the fact that he got so distracted playing video games on set that sometimes they would have to kind of like get him to come back, like get his attention to pay attention to the movie because he was just playing the video game, which is crazy and, and perfect for what, what they're portraying. But we have this grandpa coming in and, and this, this sick kid, and there's, there's so much sweet dialogue between the two of them that elevates it. And I think it's because this part of the book is what I relate to the most as being real life and not fantasy world. So the bond that they form feels a little bit more meaningful to me. Um, so, re- I mean, regardless it all, it just reminds me of the formation of the kind of memory that I think we probably all have with our grandparents. And it's the ones that we can hang on to when we're gone or when they're gone. I'm sorry. So we've all had something For me, I remember sitting on the front porch with my grandpa and him cutting up an apple. Random, random things that I remember. But that was a thing he loved to do, watching Hummingbirds. And that's that's a memory, right? That's one of those things that were something he and I did together. And I feel like that's what this scene gives us. It gives us a scene where Fred Savage's character, the grandson, clearly acknowledges over the course of reading this book when he says, Grandpa, maybe you can come over tomorrow and read it again. And then, of course, Grandpa responds perfectly, saying, as you wish. But I feel like they, they reach that level of bond in that moment, and it's something that both of them, it, it has changed their life and their relationship forever. And so, for me, it was really, really powerful this time around to focus in on those, and they're so brief, but man, the chemistry between the two of them is perfect, and that relationship and the way that it's it's shown to us. I I think that Peter Falk probably plays the best cinematic grandfather I've ever seen. Just just in this short time that he's in this film. I, I absolutely adore those moments, Patrick.
1: I like them too. And when I watch this again, and I say when because I will watch this again, I'm gonna focus on on those particular scenes with them. Because at the at the very least, when I focus on them, the thing that stands out to me the most Well, that did before you mentioned all this was the fact that, dude, Grandpa read that book in a day. I mean, that's a long book. That was a pretty thick book. Okay. So I'm just saying he was, uh, he was rocking through, I think they were getting through half of it around lunchtime or dinner or whenever he was at. So kudos to, kudos to Grandpa for being able to read through all that. But I, uh, I think that their relationship has, that kind of purpose equally as much as the other relationships in the actual story. And, and I love that it was told that way. It wasn't just told with a voiceover of him or whatever, that they included that, that particular, those particular scenes, because I think they mattered equally as much as the, uh, the story itself. So if that's not yours, what is yours? Uh, The rhyming sequence was pretty good, but uh, (laughs) no, the, there, the one scene that, that I think took the cake for me. And there's so much to love about this is the scene where Wesley is verbally beating down Humperdinck. It's the scene where it's that whole scene is just, just great. Um Buttercup. It's just after she's, you know, the guy said man and wife and she walks back and gosh, I keep going backwards because there are so many great lines before that, where <laughs> she's walking back with the King. And he says, uh she says, She gives him a kiss and he says, what was that for? He goes, well, it's because I'm probably going to kill myself and I won't see you again. he goes, that's nice. And he goes, she kissed me, you know, just completely oblivious to what's going on. So then she goes in and she finds the knife and she's, she's about to stab herself. And there's this voice that says, there's, there's a, there's a limit of perfect breasts in this world. It'd be a pity to damage yours. And she turns around there's her Wesley and she goes and tries and starts kissing him. And, and then Later, we see him see Humperdinck. You know, Humperdinck is now in the room. And when he starts just verbally abusing him and going through the the whole gamut of cutting off different pieces of his body, this whole thing is beyond just insulting him. The way he describes cutting him into pieces, it has purpose. And I love that he finishes by saying, and I quote, your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why so that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing? Will echo in your perfect ears. That is what to the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I mean, that is almost just poetic scripting right there. Because for the whole movie, we've gotten sort of common language and some maybe it feels like some meta stuff going on. And this is just brilliantly spoken dialogue. So he insults him some more. And then he stands up because Humperdinck thinks he's bluffing that he can't get up because he's been mostly dead all day. And he gets up and he holds that sword out in three words. Drop your sword. And Humperdinck sits down and he goes... Or he drops his sword and he goes, "Have a seat." And he <laughs> he's completely owned him. And I look at that moment and I see how much power words can have. And when you combine that with a simple action like holding your sword up to your opponent, I mean, I, that was a fist pump moment for me, man. I was like, "Heck yeah, justice is served." And in a fairy tale world like this, that's the hero moment that we're longing for. You know, it's rescuing the princess. This, in this case, from the evil prince but Wesley's character has earned this and we celebrate that. I think that encompasses the whole emotion that I feel during this entire movie with all these other little things that are happening. But that moment culminates for me, what I think is a fantastic s- story.
0: It's a fantastic choice. I love that moment. It's probably you know easily in my top three or so favorite scenes. I agree with you. Total fist pump. And part of the reason why is because I think that this is a, wonderful mirror or bookend in a way to what is one of the greatest jealous speeches or rants that you will ever hear in a movie. And it's in response to Humperdinck talking to Wesley when he's on the machine and Humperdinck runs down there just angry. And it's right before he cranks the machine up to 10. And he says, you truly love each other. So you might've been truly happy. Not one couple in a century has that chance, no matter what the storybook says. And so I think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will. And when you think about that moment and then this is the response that
1: mm-hmm. comes
0: from that, not only just in powerful epicness to the actual filming of the scenes and the, the the power, the, the, the way at which it gets your body going and your juices flowing, but like, Humperdinck tries to kill him with actual pain and Wesley threatens major pain, but then shows mercy Mm -hmm. and ends up holding a sword to him yet defeating him with words, Mm -hmm. words being mightier than the sword. It's great imagery, man. I, I love that scene. I'm so glad that you, you picked that one and that you respond to it as well.
1: That's good stuff, man. And when you're mostly dead all day, that's a huge accomplishment to be able to hold a sword up like that. So, so good job, Wesley, and uh, and good job everybody for for supporting him and Buttercup in their endeavor. And with that, I'm going to say thank you guys for listening, for chatting with us in uh, in our live recording tonight. If uh, if you want to continue the discussion, as we always like to do, you can always find us in the Facebook group. We're pretty active there. Uh, and we would love to hear what your connecting points were in this movie. If you've seen it, if you haven't seen this, we may have to um, delete you from the Facebook group and have you earn it back. More than likely, we won't because we're nice like that and uh, we we will show you mercy. But please go see this movie. Please watch this movie. Go see it. If it, uh, you know, it's I think it's playing in theaters right now because of the 30th anniversary. So if you get a chance to see it in the theaters, do that. But. Join us in the Facebook group, tell us what you think, tell us what your connecting points were, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch with me and continue the discussion privately, uh, you can find me at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm at Shoeless Patch, shoelesspatch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Um, two other things, we've got a couple of episodes, we've got lots of episodes coming up in the coming months, but in the next week or two, we are going to dive right into our Halloween-themed Uh, month. And we're going to be covering John Carpenter's The Thing, which I have not seen yet. I'm excited about seeing that. And uh, we're also going to be covering Blair Witch, one of Aaron's favorites. And then, thanks to the donors, we are going to be covering Scream as our monthly donor pick for October. Very, very good stuff. And as someone who doesn't like horror... I can safely say that I'm pretty excited about all three of these for varying reasons. So, me too. I'm really, <laughs>
0: really excited about all three of these. You had
1: like <laughs> we got... to some of these.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know we will never be able to come, come together to talk about certain movies, and that's fine. Um, so finding these that we can talk about, um, that you are, all... I'm, I'm excited and it's, It's, it's ramped up because you're excited and I, I just love it. So yeah, the next three are all Halloween-y. I love my word. Uh, and we are going to, I'm the Halloween uh, right
1: here. Okay. I'm just going to say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a blast, uh, with those. Well, if you want to continue the conversation with me, you can always find me anywhere online at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. And as Patrick mentioned, the Facebook group, we keep plugging, that's the place to go to continue the conversation with a few hundred other of our listeners uh, who are talking about movies and other awesome cultural entertainment stuff all week long. So we'd love to have you come be a part of that. And I think that's it for this one, Patrick, but, uh, until next time stay positive, we'll most likely kill you in the morning.